Amen. We're going to take a moment as we begin this next portion of the service to dismiss our kids and our leaders upstairs for kids' crew. So this is going to be for children who are fourth grade and under. They'll meet at the front, head upstairs with our leaders. While they're doing that, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 2. And it's okay. You may need to look in the front of your Bible and find the table of contents in order to find the book of Malachi. I will tell you, Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament. Maybe that helps if you're able to define the division between Old Testament, New Testament in your Bible. The very last book of the Old Testament will be the book of Malachi. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning as we are working our way through the book of Malachi. Also, let me just say briefly, if you're a guest, a newcomer worshiping with us today, we want to encourage you to fill out our guest registration cards throughout our sanctuary. These are located in the backs of the pews, and so you would just simply find that, and if you would, fill it out, drop it in the offering plate a little later in the service today when we receive our offering. We'll do that after the message, after our our time of response today, um, when we receive our offering, just drop that in the offering plate. Or, if you prefer, inside your worship guide, there is a QR code. You can scan the QR code on your digital device, and it'll take you to a website where you can fill out the same information. If you've joined us online this morning or listening on our radio broadcast locally on Cool 105, you can go to fbcchickasha.org slash connect. That's the keyword, fbcchickasha.org slash connect, and there you'll find that web form you can give us your information. The passage of text that we're going to study this morning is in... Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. And what's interesting is that this is a difficult passage of text for, for two reasons. One is the subject matter itself is, is in and of itself a, a difficult subject matter. But then also it's the actual wording of the text and interpreting this text from the original Hebrew language that it was written in, into because the, uh, the way that it is worded in the text makes some things unclear. It makes it unclear uh, who, is, who is the subject in a certain sense and who is the author. And the, the word order in Hebrew is obvious enough, but how should that be translated into English? So there's some things for us to work through. You'll see that as we study through the text this morning. But it's good for us that we would, that we would wrestle with difficult passages of Scripture. When we come to a passage of Scripture that is difficult, whether it's difficult because it's difficult for us to receive that truth, whether it's difficult because it raises theological or, uh, or, or perhaps uh, other issues that, that just we have to kind of work slowly through and process through, be it a, a matter, as I've said, of theology, a doctrine that is embedded in the text. We, it's good for us to work through those things. It's, it's good to do hard things, isn't it? One of the things that we tell our kids often is that you can do hard things. You can do hard things. You can, it's okay when, when you come up against something that's difficult, when you come up against something that's tough, you don't need to run from it. You don't need to, you don't need to try to find the path of least resistance or, or, or take a shortcut or sidestep difficulty because it's good to work through hard things. And I want to say from the outset this morning, this is a hard passage of text, but it's good for us to work through that. It's good for us to systematically uh, humbly work through difficult passages because it's going, to, it's going to give us truth that we need. And in fact, if we never do that, if we never wrestle with the hard texts of Scripture, 
then we're missing what God has for us. This is just as inspired as any other passage and any other text in the Bible, and so it's important that we would deal with it. The, the topic, at least in as much as it's presented in this text, what, what comes to the forefront and the part that really gives us the, the difficulty is the language and the wording here that's related to divorce. Now, I'll tell you from the outset, although I believe that divorce is a part of what the... the the author Malachi is speaking against here, he's using divorce as an example of something that was happening to point to a bigger problem. And sometimes I think when we, when we study this text, and when I say we, I, I'm not pointing the finger at you particularly, but sometimes when, as Christians, when we study this text, we want to make it all about the, the issue of divorce. And what happens is we miss we miss the forest for the trees, that old analogy, right? We zero in on something, perhaps, and, and we don't see the bigger picture of what's happening here. I'm going to try to help us do both today because there's some important doctrinal theological truths here that relate to divorce, but we also need to consider it in its proper context. And so let's back out just for a moment and do that. You remember I've been saying for the last few weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Malachi, that the book of Malachi itself is named after Malachi, the one delivering this. And Malachi, what he has done essentially is he's arranged six different uh, messages, sermons, if you will, disputations is the more theological word that's used here, that essentially Malachi has has offered up six different messages to the people of Judah about ways that they were sinning, ways that they were falling into the same old patterns of behavior, the same ruts, the same mistakes as their forefathers, who at this point they are only a few generations removed from. And, and a big part of what Malachi is saying, this message that's being delivered from God, this direct message, if you will, to the people of Judah, is that if we don't turn back from this course that we're on, then we're headed down the same path of ruin that our forefathers once walked. If we don't listen to and heed the word of warning from God, then, then ultimately we're going to experience the same calamity, the same heartbreak, the same pain, the same ruin that those before us walked. Now, if you've been attending for a while, you know that earlier this fall, we studied through the book of Lamentations. And a big part of the book of Lamentations is written from the perspective of the brokenness, the pain, the hurt that were brought by the sin, the continual unrepentant sin in the lives of the children of Israel. And ultimately, God gave them the consequence that he told them he would give, and, and he gave them the consequence that he warned them was coming if they would not turn from their sin, and they didn't, and so they experienced that consequence. And you have the book of Lamentations written from that perspective of brokenness, pain, heartache, that are, that are responding to the, the darkness that came through God's discipline. But God was faithful to his word, and he preserved a remnant. He preserved a few. And even in the book of Malachi, what we see are things that are happening as the children of Israel have returned to Jerusalem. They've returned to their homeland. They have begun to rebuild the temple. They've begun to rebuild the wall around their city. They've begun to enter back into the life that they had known before. And yet, unfortunately... They also picked up the same sins that they had been living with before as well. 
And the word that we need to hear in this, and the word that I hope you will hear both today and as we study our way through the book of Malachi, is that sin brings brokenness and pain in our lives when we don't, when we don't treat it seriously the way that we should. And so even as we walk through this text this morning and as we look at this, this passage, let's, let's keep in mind that what is being spoken here is a word of warning from a loving God who wants to see his people flourish, who wants to see his people be a blessing that they may bless others, who wants to see his children be a light to the nations, and yet unless they heed this word of warning, there is judgment and punishment that are coming. That's the background for this text. One other thing I want to say before we dive in, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, is I want you to look specifically, or pay, let me, let me say it this way, pay careful attention to the word faithless that is used in this text. Five different times in the text, the word faithless is used. Now, as parents, when you say something over and over to your children, when you repeat a phrase or a word, what's the point of that? It's because you want your kids to hear that, right? When you repeat yourself. It's because there's something that you want them to know, something that you want them to hear. There's a word that they... And so you repeat that so that they might get it. The same thing is happening here. The word that is being spoken to the children of Israel is, is a word ultimately in this particular text about their faithlessness and how they are to be faithful how they, are to, how they are to recognize they are playing the part of the faithless spouse, the faithless wanderer, the faithless worshiper who has turned their back on a loving God. And so pay close attention as we read through the text and you see the word faithless because the main idea of this passage that we're going to study is what it means to be faithful. Because here is a word about faithlessness, but the point is that we would heed the warning in order that we might be faithful. And so we want to see the requirements of faithfulness as we listen to this word of God. And just as it speaks to the children of Israel in its day, it speaks to us today. And so may we humbly ask ourselves the question, am I? Am I being faithless? Or how may I, how should I be faithful in light of God's call on my life? Okay? With that being said, let's dive in. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
and was not the one, and, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Twice in this passage, in verse 15 and then again in verse 16, we see this phrase, okay? And this is what I think is the key to this text. It's going to be the key to understanding it. We see it in verse 15 and again in 16. We see, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless. Or in in verse 16, Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. That's the the main thrust of this text. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Or, to state it maybe in a positive sense instead of a negative and a little more straightforwardly, be faithful, right? Guard yourself and be faithful. That's the point of what Malachi is saying here, this word that God is giving to uh, to the children of Israel. So let's, let's step back and let's walk through. There are, there are several different ways that Judah is being faithless that God points them to in this text. In fact, really five different ways that we can see that they are being faithless. So let's look at the examples of Judah's faithlessness and then let's, let's ultimately ask ourselves the question, What then must we do to be faithful? The five examples, I'm just walking through the text. Beginning in verse 10, we see first of all that they have sinned against each other. Have we not one father, it says in verse 10, has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another? Why are we faithless to one another? They've sinned against one another. In in their sin, in their wrongdoing against one another, ultimately, they have profaned the covenant of their fathers. So they've, they've turned their back on the covenant that they had with God, and in so doing, they are sinning against each other. It's an example of their faithlessness. They have also profaned the sanctuary. Verse 11, we go on and we read about this, right? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Which, again, that there's some ambiguity in the text. That who loves? That the Lord loves the sanctuary? That Judah loves? It seems best, and even the way that it's worded here, uh, seems to point to it's The Lord loves the sanctuary, and Judah has profaned the sanctuary. And so Judah has profaned the sanctuary. And how has Judah profaned the sanctuary? Well, it's, it's in his... It's in his worship and in his offerings and in the, particularly here, in intermarriage. Now, that we'll, we'll deal with that one in a minute because that's the third way, that they, the third example of their faithlessness. But the idea of the faithlessness in, in, their, in their worshiping. They come into the Lord's sanctuary, into his holy place, and, and their lives are stained with sin. And rather than acknowledging their sin, rather than acknowledging their guilt, they... They just want God to accept them. They don't want to deal with the problem of their sin. You jump down in verse 13 and you see that this is a problem that they, they, 
they flood the altar with tears. That's a picture there of they, they weep and they cry out in that place of worship. And yet what they realize ultimately is that God will not honor their offerings. He will not honor their sacrifices because they won't deal with sin. They think that they can just go through the motions, give lip service to the Lord, and that everything will be okay. And the point is, no. Malachi says, no, that doesn't work. So that's the second example of their faithlessness is in their worship. The third example is in intermarriage. Now, this is a complicated one, but, uh, but essentially the, the issue is that they have married the, as he says here, the daughter of a foreign god. This is in verse, I'm going back to verse 11. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the idea was, God, and you go back into the, the, the law or what we would think of as the Pentateuch, and God told his, his children, a part of the covenant is they were to be a holy and a pure race. They were not to marry among other nations. Why were they not to marry among other nations? Because the Lord knew that if they married amongst the other nations, that, they would, that ultimately they would chase after and worship the gods of the other nations, and they wouldn't honor God. And in fact, that's exactly what has happened. It's a problem during this period of, this period of exile, and it's a problem in the period when, when they return to Jerusalem. Go back, and if you study the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, which are contemporaries, at least in terms of the, the timetable of when the book of Malachi would have been written, and you see that to be a problem in both of those books as well, in both Ezra and in Malachi. In fact, Ezra deals with that uh, rather, rather pointedly, and, and, and Nehemiah as well. Now, the problem was not just that the children of Judah had married um, amongst other nations. The problem, ultimately, was that they had begun to worship and, and seek after the gods of these other nations. And so the Lord is speaking to them this word of judgment. You have not honored the word of the covenant. You have violated God's law. I think it's important that we, that we don't confuse religious intermarriage and ethnic intermarriage okay this is not about this is not about the ethnicity of the people that were being married it's about the religious practices of the people that were being married you can you can point to other faithful men in uh, in, in the the lineage of of Israel for example uh, Moses right I mean Moses belongs on the Mount Rushmore of of, of faith in the Old Testament, but he was one of the, the primary, maybe in some ways, uh, one of the, the top two, Moses and Jacob, were, were these enormous figures, and Moses was married to a foreign woman. The issue isn't so much about the ethnicity, the issue is about the worship practices, and as they begin to marry among the other nations, they begin to adopt the worship practices of these other people's Adultery is a fourth issue. The faithlessness because, of their, because they're not faithful. Verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So there's the idea of, of adultery. You have not been faithful to the wife of your youth. And then, of course, the result of that unfaithfulness, which was Divorce, the fifth example. So five examples in this text that speak to the faithlessness of Judah. They've sinned against each other. 
They have profaned God's sanctuary in their worship. They have married amongst the, the, the peoples around them and begun to seek after the, the gods of the peoples around them. They have committed adultery and, and they have committed divorce. And in each of these, what God is saying is, you are being faithless. But the answer, the solution, he says, is guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourself in your spirit and be faithful. So what I want us to consider are four things that happen when we will heed this warning and we will be faithful. When we will, what, what, what does it take for us to be faithful? What does faithfulness look like in our day, in our time? First of all, to be faithful, you must honor your commitment to Christ. To be faithful, you must honor your commitment to Christ. To be clear, everyone who has turned to the Lord for salvation, everyone who has turned to Jesus by faith, confessed Him as Lord and Savior, has made a commitment. You have committed to surrender your life to Him. You have committed to make Him the Lord of your life. You have committed to, as it were, to humble yourself before Him and to put Him first. And if you want to walk in faithfulness, if you want to be faithful, you need to honor your commitment to Christ. Clearly, what's happening here is that the Judeans were not honoring their commitment to the Lord. They were not honoring the covenant. And, and there were five examples that, that I've pointed to, five ways that it's clearly pointed out that they are not honoring the commitment that they've made. So to be faithful, they must honor that covenant commitment. You see, the, the covenant that was established with Judah, the covenant that goes all the way back, you could say to uh, there was the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. There was the covenant that God establishes with Jacob. The, the covenant that existed between the children of Israel and God was that they would be his people. They would honor him. They would put him first. They would obey his law. They would look to him as Lord and that he would bless them in order to be a blessing to others. But plainly, we see they've wandered from that. They have turned their back. If we want to be a faithful people, we must honor our commitment to Christ by putting him first by serving him as Lord by obeying his word by doing what it says by surrendering our lives to him walking in humility recognizing that God has called us to be a holy and a just people we're to honor the commitment that we made to Christ I think it's so telling it's so telling that when we look at the state of the church today, and again, I'm not just speaking about First Baptist Church, although I think that we as a church, we as a local body, we need to, we need to look ourselves in the mirror, so to speak, and ask, you know, is, is this us? Is this true of me? But I think one of the things that we see to be true of the church, particularly the church in America today, is that we are not distinct from the world around us. Our lives are, are just like the lives of people who don't profess faith in Christ. Our lives, too much of the time, are just like others around us who, who have not 
confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have not surrendered their lives to him and, and, and turned to him by faith for their salvation. And I think one of the things that we have to do is take a good hard look in the mirror and ask, Lord, am I honoring the covenant commitment that I made to you? Am I honoring you? Am I putting you first? Am I, am I truly surrendering my life to you? Am I doing everything that I can to be faithful to the commitment that I made? The commitment that you made when you surrendered your life to Jesus was that you would trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin. You would, you would submit yourself to him as Lord of your life in order that you might be forgiven and set free. That you recognize that on your own there was nothing you could do to save yourself. And so by faith you look to Jesus and said, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I submit myself to you. And I want to serve you as Lord. Will you honor that commitment? The covenant commitment to Christ. The second thing that we see in this text is that to be faithful, you must persevere through trials. Now in each of these examples that I've given of the faithlessness of Judah. Ultimately, their, their faithlessness was tied to some kind of a difficulty or trial that they were walking in. And so I think it's, I think it's important that we understand that the reason they were struggling to be faithful is because they were dealing with some really hard things. Sometimes we lose that perspective when we look back anachronistically, meaning that we, we kind of lose the idea of time and, and things that have happened and, and, the, and the situation, the circumstances that were... That we, we forget that there's a real context and real people who were dealing with real struggles in real situations. They were walking through trials. For one, the, they, they were living with the brokenness and pain of a nation who had been conquered and defeated. Their forefathers carried off. Their, their ancestors, many of them killed. Many of them, many of them uh, their, their lives sent into total, total and utter ruin because a, a warring nation came in, broke down their walls, took their homes, carried off their possessions, and they were left with nothing. And so now, a few generations removed from that, a, a few decades, uh, 75 years or so removed from that, here are a people who are dealing with the, the consequence of that, of that ruin, of that destruction. And things were hard. They had fallen on times of economic depression. They had warring nations around them who were, were in control of their economy. They saw that the other peoples, the, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the, 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 surrounding, the surrounding peoples, they were flourishing and doing well, and yet... The Judeans were struggling. And so what did they do? They began to marry amongst the other people. For there was an element of political stability. There was an element of financial stability in that. There was just the basic truth that we, we worship Yahweh as God. We, we say we honor him as Lord. And yet, where is the blessing? Where is the, how does that make our lives better? Look at all these other peoples around us. Look at, look at the ways that they're prospering. And so they were, they were tempted to look at things that were happening around them and to say, well, if it works, then let's do it. And you know, the same thing could be said in today's context, could it not, of Christians in the church in America today. It's easy 
to fall into the subtle temptation of a sort of, uh, we'll call it pragmatism, that just says, well, if, it, if it's working, then, then let's go with it. But the problem is, just because it works in this moment doesn't mean that it works ultimately. And just because something seems to, uh, seems to produce a result in the short run doesn't mean that it's going to produce the long-term results that we want. So much of the time we're so nearsighted in the way we approach things. We want, we want instant results, right? Instant gratification. We want everything. And, and so if it seems easy and it seems to work now, and we don't really ask ourselves the consequence, what is this going to produce in the long run? And I, you, could, you could literally pick issue after issue of our day. And, and this, this thing bears itself to be true. We have chosen what is easy, what is instant, what is right now, and we've traded short-term gains for long-term, long-term uh, blessings, if you will. That's what Israel has done. So there were trials. There were, there were, they were living in a, truly a, a tough moment, politically, religiously, uh, culturally, economically, and yet what they did is they chose the easy way out. They chose the path of least resistance. If we're going to be faithful, we can't just choose the easy way. We have to choose to do what's right even when it's not easy. We have to choose to do what is right even when in the short term it seems like it doesn't pay off. We have to be willing to trade faithfulness in the eyes of God for short-term gain. And so to be faithful, you must persevere through trials. That's one of the key points of, of this text. The third one is this, to be faithful, you must guard against sin. You must guard against sin. Twice, I've pointed to it already in verse 15 and again in verse 16. Twice, he says, Rather pointedly, guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. What does it mean to guard yourself in your spirit? Well, first of all, it means that you need to, you need to have some boundaries. You need to have some protections. You need to have, as it were, some, some spiritual walls in your life. Some protection that, that you would guard against the onslaught of the enemy. You would guard against the temptation to sin. You would guard against what seems easy and what seems convenient and what seems immediate. We would guard ourselves, guard our hearts, guard against sin. It's, it's not popular to talk about sin today because we don't, nobody wants to be told that you're, that you're sinful. In fact, a lot of times in, in, the, in the language that we use today, we talk a lot about, uh, a lot about safety, and it's not, you know, uh, and, and about harm, and that's not, that's not a safe place for me, or that's not, and, and now hear me, I, I think that we need, to, we need to be careful in the way that we, that we talk about sin, because the point is that we would ultimately, we would understand that we're all sinners, we're all broken, and so we're not trying to vilify everybody else and let ourselves off. 
At least you ought not to be, right? We're not trying to point to the speck in our brother's eye and ignore the plank in our own eye, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. At least we ought not to do that. But we have to talk about sin. And we have to deal with the reality of sin. That we have turned our backs on God. We have rebelled against God. We have, we have violated his righteous requirements. And that the result of that sin is that we, we deserve death, punishment. But in his grace, God has made a way for us to be forgiven. That We can trust in Jesus. We can, as we've already established, commit our lives to him. Honor him as Lord. Surrender ourselves to him. We can be redeemed, forgiven, and set free through faith in Jesus. But we must be honest about our sin. And if we're going to be honest about our sin, then we also have to recognize that the moment you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the temptations don't all just go away. In fact, the enemy is going to be after you all the more. The enemy wants nothing more than to cause you as a Christian to stumble and fall in sin, to ruin your reputation, and thereby to discredit your faith. You must guard against sin. To be faithful, you must guard against sin. But then we see ultimately the, the fruit of faithfulness is this. When you are faithful, you will experience peace. Part of the difficulty of this passage, in fact, the most difficult part of interpreting from an interpretive standpoint, the most difficult part of this passage is in verse 16. The first verses Uh, The first words, I should say, in verse 16 in the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is what I study from and teach from, say this. And I'm just going to read. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. You'll notice there's some little footnotes there. And you you look at the the footnotes and and you can see that there's, there's some 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 ways that we can interpret this. In fact, in my Bible, there's a footnote with the number 10, and you look and it says, Hebrew who hates and divorces, right? So in other words, for the one who does not love his wife but divorces her, or the one who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and then covers, there again is another footnote, a little footnote number 11, and you see, says, says this, right? Probable meaning, and then it says, compared to passage in Deuteronomy, or, and then in quotations, the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce in him who covers. So another way that you could read this is to say that the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and, co- and, and him who covers his garment in violence. Uh, other English translations, if you read the NIV, the NLT, the King James Version, the Holman Christian, they all, they all deal with this a little bit differently in each English translation. And the fact that each translation interprets this and deals with it a little bit differently 
points to the fact that the language itself there is vague. The language in the original Hebrew is vague, and it's a little bit difficult to navigate. You have to consider not only its context here, but you have to look at the usage of those words with those same types of endings in other places and make comparison. And, and that's, that's the work of, of biblical scholarship and, and, and others who have wrestled through that. I think, personally... That as I've studied this and I've compared the translations and used the background that I have in languages, which admittedly is not anything like the, the, the level of, uh, of these scholars who work on these interpretations committee. I don't want to pretend for a minute that I know what it ought to say and, and that they missed it. Or, but I think probably in, in my own study that I think the, the best way to understand this would be something along the lines of saying that God says, I hate divorce and the one who covers his garment in violence uh, is guilty of, of this sin. Something in that context. It's not precisely word for word maybe how I would translate it. But the point is this. God hates divorce. And that divorce points to brokenness that happens when people don't honor their covenant. And then the language about the uh, covers his garment in violence that's rather, that's rather specific and rather picturesque language, isn't it? It covers your garment with violence. Again, that's it's a, a little bit different, difficult interpretively, but the whole point, regardless of exactly how you interpret the words precisely, the point is that when you, when you have divorce, you have the brokenness and the pain that come with that. You have the fallout. Now, the bigger picture here is guard yourself in your spirit and be faithful. Don't be faithless to the Lord. Don't, don't commit a sort of a spiritual adultery of sorts in that you don't honor the covenant commitment that you made with God, but rather honor Him. Honor the one to whom you have committed your life. Honor the covenant that you have made with Him, much like a man should honor his covenant with the wife of his youth. And be faithful to that covenant. And when you do, you will have peace. When you are faithful, you will experience peace. That's the point. When we don't honor the commitment that we have with God, when we are faithless, our lives are set by, marked by violence and chaos and ruin and pain and brokenness. But when we honor the Lord and we honor the commitment that we have, when we persevere through trials, when we guard ourselves against sin, then we will experience peace. Now hear me. Let's go back and, and let's finish the, the conversation about divorce and tie a bow on that for a minute. Because, because it's, it's worthy of our attention. Uh, there are other biblical passages that deal with divorce and deal with what the Bible's teaching on divorce. And we need to consider this passage in Malachi chapter 2 in context. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Go to Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew chapter 19. And you, you deal with these places where, where uh, the Lord is teaching about these things. Matthew chapter 6. You deal with places where the Lord is... Jesus is teaching about these things. The scriptures are dealing with these things. Uh, and in all of this, the point is, we, what we see is that marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul 
says so very pointedly. He says, I tell you this truth. This refers to Christ and the church. And he's speaking about marriage there, the commitment between a, a husband and a wife. Marriage, the reason God has given us marriage, is it's, first of all, it's a blessing. It's for our good. But it's also meant to teach us something bigger about the love that Jesus has for us. And when we are not faithful to that covenant, when we are not faithful to that commitment, then ultimately we experience the brokenness and the pain that comes with it. And when we will honor that covenant, and when we will persevere through difficulty and trial, and when we will guard ourselves against sin and temptation, then we will know the Lord's peace. That's the point, both in this context and in the bigger picture, I think, of what the Scripture is teaching us. Do I believe that God hates divorce? Yes. I don't think God hates divorced people. That would be uh, an utter misinterpretation of that passage entirely. But I think God hates divorce because anytime that happens, it, it shows the reality of, of sin and brokenness. And, and the Lord hates that. He wants us to know his peace. He wants us to be blessed. He wants us to experience the fullness of joy that comes when we live in his blessing and his plans for our lives. And yet we sin. And so the reality is our lives are marked by that sin. But if we will be faithful to the commitment that we've made to the Lord, if we will persevere through trials, if we will guard our hearts against sin, then we will be faithful. Not perfect, mind you, but faithful. And when we are faithful, then we experience peace. I hope today that you know God's peace in your heart, in your life. Have you sinned in your past? Turn to Jesus. Confess the sin, acknowledge it, and turn to Him. Are you living in sin right now? Turn to Jesus. Confess your sin, acknowledge your wrong. Are you tempted by sin? Guard your heart. Turn to Jesus, confess it, and acknowledge that you might walk in faithfulness and experience His peace. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response, a time of invitation. In our invitation today, we want to respond by saying, God, we want your peace. Help us to experience your peace in our hearts. We know that peace comes through honoring the commitment that we've made to you. We know that peace comes through persevering through hardship and trials and difficulties. We know that peace comes as we guard our hearts against sin. God, help us to experience your peace. As we look to you, we honor you, we guard our hearts against sin. My prayer for you is today that you would, you would be willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. If there's never been that moment in your life when you've confessed your sin, when you've surrendered your life to him, that today you might, you might do that. You might honor him as Lord and Savior, turning away from your sin and turning toward a faithful Savior. And that if you've taken that step, that you would recognize you're not perfect. That there are struggles and temptations and trials that your faith persevere through those trials in the strength that comes through walking in step with the Spirit, the power that God supplies, guarding your heart against sin, recognizing the temptations and the struggle. And as we are faithful, we will experience God's peace.
Would you pray with me? God, as we, as we wrestle through these truths today and we acknowledge what your word says, first and foremost, we ask that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, to acknowledge our sin and our, and our wrongdoing and our guilt before you, to acknowledge the way that we've wandered away. That we've perhaps chosen what is convenient or maybe immediate over what is best. Lord, convict us of sin that we might acknowledge sin and turn our hearts to you. Beyond that, God, work in our hearts that we might, that, that we might recognize the temptations that cause us to stumble. That we might guard our hearts against temptation and sin, Lord, that we would, that we would be surrendered to you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful as we seek to honor the commitment we've made to you, as we seek to persevere through hardship and trial, as we seek to guard ourselves against sin. And as we walk in faithfulness, Lord, may we experience your peace in our lives. All this we pray in your name, Jesus.